All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome back to Your Brain on Science and to the second part of the Structure Equals Function series with me, Elena. Today we're going to dive into another structural class of psychedelics and talk about their closely related structural cousin. But first, let's do a brief reminder about last week's episode. In case you missed it, we dove into the concept of structure equals function and how that can be applied to psychedelic compounds. The basic molecular structure determines the property of substances and then determines how they function, which in the case of psychedelics determines how we feel when these compounds are ingested. So last episode, we talked all about the tryptamines and a little bit about ergolines, but what about the other psychedelic class that looks less like serotonin and more like amphetamine? The phenethylamine class, which includes mescaline, analogs similar to mescaline, and MDMA. And to talk about these further, we have a revisiting guest, Harrison Elder. Hi, Elena. Thanks again for having me on. It's uh, great to be able to follow up from last week's episode. On the, on the tryptamines with a little discussion on phenethylamines, really interesting class of psychedelics. Yeah, and I remember last week you mentioned that uh, the phenethylamines, the amphetamine relationship was something that you were really interested in in your own research, so. Yeah, so my, um, my dissertation actually has focused a lot on the amphetamine class, uh, some of its chemistry, its pharmacology, and you know, how its effects on the body, specifically respiration for my uh, dissertation. But Amphetamines in general are just kind of fascinating compounds to me. I'm, I really love researching them and kind of learning how they work because they have so many different mechanisms of action. Cool, cool, cool. So, all right, let's get into today's topic, the phenethylamine. So let's just first talk about, you know, what is a phenethylamine? So as we talked about last week with the tryptamines, tryptamines were those, you know, bicyclic molecule, very similar to serotonin. Um, the phenethylamines are a whole different family of, of drugs and molecules um, that look a lot more like dopamine. So phenethylamine is really, uh, we refer to this class as our family as the phenethylamine family of drugs um, because of this, uh, because they all share a very similar core structure of a single phenyl ring, you know, that hexagon that you've probably seen a lot around in chemistry and in illustrations of molecules um, attached to the same side chain that comes off of tryptamine, this two carbons and a nitrogen. So ethyl for the two carbons and a nitrogen, which is termed amine. So you have a phenyl ethylamine. Um, and so dopamine has two oxygens that come off of the phenyl ring uh, opposite from that, that side chain with the nitrogen on it. Um, but if you tweak the molecule in any number of different ways, it gives rise to a bunch of different uh, drug classes that are very, you know, they produce unique uh, subjective effects. So the amphetamines, which are stimulants, very different, you know, everyone probably has heard of Adderall. Uh, amphetamine is a phenethylamine, very mildly tweaked. That's a stimulant, but then there are also a ton of very strong psychedelics that are also phenethylamines. Yeah, so you mentioned a little bit how they're different from tryptamines. Basically, instead of having that indole ring structure, they just have that phenyl ring. Correct. That's correct. So the indole is that kind of bicyclic, you know, two ring structure that we were referring to last time. Um, but yeah, they're, they, they look very similar. The, the, uh, 
major difference, like you said, is just that single uh, fennel ring that's attached to the side chain. Yeah. So what are some examples, I guess, of common phenethylamine psychedelics? So uh, I think probably the most well-known phenethylamine psychedelic would be mescaline. It's the, you know, the classical psychedelic of the phenethylamine class, the father of the whole class. Um, it's the psychedelic that's found in peyote and it's naturally occurring. It's the psychedelic that Aldous Huxley wrote the doors of perception about. Great book. If you um, haven't read it. And I, I there, yeah, it is, it's a great book. Um, also like heaven and hell off topic, but I like that one better. <laughs> they're all very concise. Aldous Huxley, you know, well, he's wordy, but it's, it's the they're pretty short little books. Yeah. Um, they get the point across, but the reason that mescaline is so fascinating is because you know, with the tryptamines, they're struck, they look almost identical to serotonin. It would make sense that they bind to all sorts of serotonin receptors. Mescaline and other phenethylamine psychedelics, they look a lot like dopamine. They look very similar to dopamine, yet they bind to a bunch of serotonin receptors and act as, you know, traditional classical psychedelics. So it's fascinating that the, stru the structure that looks pretty different from a tryptamine or serotonin binds to serotonin's um, natural receptors in the brain. So considering that they look a lot like dopamine, but they bind to some serotonin receptors, what else are they binding to? Like what specifically do they bind to? So uh, a drug like mescaline, you know, as I said, looks a lot like dopamine, um, is binding to, you know, serotonin 2A receptors, the receptor that mediates most hallucinogenic effects as far as we know, as far as all the scientific literature is concerned. Um, so mescaline's binding to that. But it also binds to the other uh, receptors in that, you know, 5-HT2, the serotonin 2 family, um, one of which is uh, the 2C receptor. So 5-HT2C receptors, uh, same family, a little different, but they're very associated with regulation of dopamine. They're in very similar pathways in, you know, your um, nucleus accumbens, the area of the brain that, you know, mediates addiction and reward. Um, they're yeah. found kind of alongside dopaminergic pathways. So some of the hypothesis might be that they're, um, those receptors are set up in a way to be sensitive to concentrations of dopamine or dopamine like molecules. Um, that in makes sense. Regions. Yeah. You said, so mescaline's like the prototypic, I guess, phenethylamine. Father of the class. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, is there other, like, what's another one that we can talk about? Another phenethylamine psychedelic. Um, so the, the most common phenethylamine psychedelics that people have probably heard of might be the, uh, the DOI, DOX series, you know, the drugs that are, uh, that were invented by Alexander Shulgin, more commonly known phenethylamines tend to fall on the stimulant side of things like amphetamine, Adderall, mm -hmm. methamphetamine, everyone knows meth. Yeah. The non-psychedelic phenethylamines. Exactly. The non-psychedelic phenethylamines are, are much more widely known. Just because phenethylamines have really, as a structural class, they have that mescaline as the one naturally occurring, and then a whole litany of analogs that are are pretty obscure. I mean, they've never really achieved um, major widespread popularity. Gotcha. What about something like MDMA? Well, so that MDMA is actually one of the most fascinating kind of drugs. I think we're going to talk about in you know between yesterday and today, because it's kind of the love child of amphetamine and mescaline. It has, <laughs> <laughs> it has, you know, it, it structurally, if you look at it, 
Amphetamine, the, what, what an amphetamine stimulant is, is just that basic stripped down phenethylamine structure with a single uh, methyl group off of the, that side chain right next to the nitrogen. And that it gives it all sorts of different properties that are, you know, uh, that make it a stimulant, make it a very strong stimulant. If you look at MDMA, it has some substituents, you know, some substitutions on the other side on the ring along with that, you know, one methyl group that makes it an amphetamine. So MDMA is an amphetamine. Um, and, and those substituents is what gives its name MDMA, correct? That's correct. So the A in MDMA is amphetamine. <laughs> but then on the other side of the molecule, you look and there's, uh, you know, a couple oxygens that are linked together by, you know, a carbon linkage. And that's called a methylene dioxy group. That's where the MD comes in. Um, and so you put those together, you put a, another carbon on the nitrogen and you have MDMA, which is structurally, if you look at that, a picture of it, I'm pretty sure we're going to share a video after this that you can take a look at. Yeah. Check out our blog for the uh, video that goes along with this episode. But if you take a look at it you take a look at mescaline, you take a look at amphetamine, MDMA looks perfectly in between the two. And as a drug, it blends the effects of a stimulant and a psychedelic so perfectly and uniquely that it actually has MDMA is kind of considered to be in a class of its own. It's considered to be the prototypical antactogen drug. With, mm -hmm. And these are drugs that um, tend to produce feelings of euphoria, closeness, sociability, empathy overall. So, you know, you're getting some of those classic stimulant effects of you know, euphoria and sociability, mm -hmm. but you're also getting these big feelings of empathy and, you know, the, a lot of those have been linked to MDMA's ability to release serotonin. So not only is it binding to, to a couple serotonin receptors, but MDMA is also releasing serotonin in the way that stimulants release dopamine. Yeah. And I think MDMA is like really interesting and it should really be thought of as a class of its own, right? I know it's got that similar structure to the drugs we're talking about today, but um, a lot of people want to classify it as you know, a psychedelic, but it really is. And that's a good point that you brought up a class of its own. It is yeah, absolutely a class of its own. And again, once, if you go on your own computer, look at the bit, you know, look at Wikipedia or look at our video after this, it's very visually apparent that it's, you know, a perfect blend of an amphetamine and a psychedelic, but MDMA as a drug is, you know, acting very differently from either of those two classes. And um, if you've ever read anything about the effects of MDMA, you have ever taken it or known someone who's taken it, they will tell you that, you know, they don't take MDMA and trip balls. You know, mm -hmm. they don't, they're not um, in a psychedelic headspace or feeling extremely psychedelic effects. It's, they're kind of these, you know, unique blend of empathetic effects um, yeah. that set them apart from the other, you know, classes of drugs in this family. Definitely. Um, so I guess that, that really gets into like how tweaking the molecule, how tweaking the structure can alter like how we have these different effects, right? So for example, like mescaline, uh, the prototypical phenethylamine psychedelic, um, the trip is a lot different than something like MDMA. That's correct. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and the phenethylamines, you know, they're different from each other. So MDMA is going gonna, is gonna to feel different than um, mescaline because of their pharmacological differences, but mescaline as a quote unquote classical psychedelic is going to feel 
very different from other classical psychedelics mm -hmm. because of its structure and what it binds to. So yeah. psilocybin and LSD, the very, very classic tryptamine and ergolene examples, those tend to be have a very strong headspace, kind of an inebriation effect. Mm -hmm. They have very strong visual, you know, effects. They're really a dyed in the wool psychedelic. They, yeah, full on changes in perception. Correct. Yeah. Uh, whereas mescaline is is usually described as being a very gentle, subtle, um, non visually stimulating. I mean, until we yeah. take a, a whole bunch, but but like a clearer headed. Yeah, exactly, a much clearer headed trip. Um, and people tend to think that that's because mescaline doesn't bind to as many serotonin receptors. It doesn't look like serotonin, so it's a little more restricted in its binding profile. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be one reason that it's a little more gentle and, and clear headed um, of an experience compared to the other classical hallucinogens. Yeah. And that kind of, I guess, leads me into talking a little bit more about analogs of mescaline. So you did mention earlier the um, DOX compounds. And so um, if we want to just go a the little bit ones. into some of the more <laughs> obscure things that um, not only do we use in research, but have been like reported to be used, um, you know, by Shulgin or by some random people on the internet, like, you know, there's a lot of random yeah. people on the internet and the, <laughs> the analogs have become, you know, very popular because of the internet. But, um, just to talk to a, a little bit to this point of the analogs of, of mescaline, most of them are still pretty obscure. You've probably never heard of them. They don't have street names. There's no street names for a lot of these drugs. Um, but a, a scientist back in the seventies became fascinated, rediscovered MDMA was had an Aldous Huxley dorsal perception like trip on mescaline and became fascinated with mescaline. Unfortunately, he found mescaline takes three to 400 milligrams to produce full effects, which was just not ergonomic. It wasn't economical. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to work. So he showed Dr. Alexander Shulgin went on to create hundreds of these analogs by tweaking the molecule just a little bit. Yeah. So mescaline has these three, you know, uh, methoxy groups that hang off of the, the phenyl ring. Like little arms. Little arms, real, little oxygen with a, <laughs> a carbon that comes off it. They do look like little arms, yeah, they do. like a squid or a tentacle or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he moved, moved those around on the phenyl ring. He added, you know, made some of them amphetamines and psychedelic, psychedelic looking on the ring. Um, and out of, you know, his experimentation with moving these substituents around, he created a whole class of compounds known as the DOX compounds. So that would include DOB, DOI, DOC. Um, and that last letter usually refers to like, a, you know, a bromine or a chlorine or an iodine. Yeah. We use DOI a lot in um, preclinical research because it's not scheduled, still isn't scheduled. Yeah. So, um, uh, side note, uh, humble brag here, but uh, me and Harrison, uh, along with a lot of other scientists and advocates and students for sensible drug policy, uh, fought against the DEA for this for the scheduling of DOI uh, just a few months ago. So we're pretty proud that uh, the DEA withdrew its rule, and we are still using DOI as an unscheduled research tool. Um, it didn't have to halt any pertinent psychedelic research. Yeah, it was a big victory. The DEA doesn't typically back down from these um, scheduling proposals. But um, anyway, the, these, Sorry, the yeah. DEA, no, it, no it, it, we needed to do the side note because I'm, I'm very proud of that too. I, yeah. I can't believe that we, we, we won there. Um, but the, DOI, the DOX compounds are, are commonly used in research, not very commonly used by humans. No. 
And the, the interesting thing about them is structurally, they're both amphetamine. They have an amphetamine structure and a psychedelic structure, much like MDMA looks, but the way that the, you know, methoxy groups are on there, it causes them to be classic hallucinogen, classic psychedelic compounds that just bind to uh, serotonin receptors. They're very potent at doing that. They approximate the effects of mescaline at, at you know, sub milligram doses under one milligram, yeah. kind of like LSD, very potent drugs. Um, but they also, because of the amphetamine portion of their structure, tend to last an extremely long time, like 18 to 24 hours of heavy tripping with, you know, again, a milligram, a single milligram yeah. of, you know, one of the DO uh, X compounds might send somebody into a, a psychedelic state for 18 to 24 hours. Most people, even people who really enjoy psychedelics don't want, don't that. want that, don't enjoy that. And so the DO, these compounds haven't become very popular, but yeah. you know, they're another example of you, you know, move a substituent around on that ring, boom, extremely potent, uh, agonist or, you yeah. know, extremely potent activator of serotonin, um, receptors. Yeah. And like, so for example, uh, I use DOI a lot in my studies and it's super potent at the serotonin, uh, 2A receptor, and then super, like still super potent at 2C, but a little bit lesser than 2A. And we really use it as a tool to like hone in on what's going on at that serotonin 2A specifically. Whereas uh, other drugs like the tryptamines, like psilocybin or LSD, bind to like uh, serotonin 1A or 1B or dopamine receptors or adrenergic receptors. So it's a really a useful, dirtier, yeah. yeah, they're dirtier. So, you know, these analogs are a super useful tool to really just like hone in on the serotonin 2A receptor. Well, and so then kind of to circle back to our little side note on the, the legal status of DOI, um, one of the reasons that DOI and, you know, a lot of the other mescaline phenethylamine psychedelic analogs have gotten, you know, have have had any popularity is because they, um, if you tweak the, the chemical structure of one of these molecules, so let's say we made mescaline illegal, but then we put, you know, one extra group on it, or we, you know, we add a, a carbon off the chain somewhere that makes the drug no longer illegal. It's a different drug. It's a yeah. different structure. You know, your results may vary. Don't try this. There are laws that actually are in effect about that. Federal Analog Act to be one. But yeah, um, by tweaking these molecules very minorly, um, you people have been able to get around the laws or they found out that they can get, out, get around the laws and uh, still get drugs that have a very similar effect. So yeah, it's kind of similar with like back in like the 2000s, early 2000s, uh, what was going on with like uh, cannabis analogs like K2 and stuff like that, um, where all these like weird analogs were coming out and people were smoking them and they technically weren't illegal. So um, it's kind of the same thing with psychedelics. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm taking a very different tack than I took the, the first during the first part of this series where the last time we talked, I said, you know, you can change, you know, put just the most minuscule change to the molecule can cause drastic changes to, to its effects. On the other hand, with certain drugs and certain, certain um, changes to the molecule, a small change might not change the effects a whole lot or not enough for it, you know, to be mm -hmm. not pleasurable or not make you trip or what have you. So 
there is a little tolerance in some of these structures for these changes. And people have exploited that to make drugs that are not illegal, but feel similar to the ones that they're looking for that might be illegal. Yeah. And even on the legal side of things, right, there's a whole business now made up of, you know, tweaking these molecules to optimize, you know, the experience. That's the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that that's what they're doing with, you know, psychedelics currently. They're trying to find a way to separate the therapeutic effects from the, you know, hallucinogenic effects by tweaking these molecules. So it's not just, you know, mm -hmm. people trying to um, subvert drug laws yeah. who are doing this. It's, you know, the very people who are trying to develop medicines. Yeah. And I even have like seen some presentations on just trying to tweak a formulation of you know, a substance. So like trying to just tweak the formulation of mescaline or psilocybin so they can give it IV or like something where, you know, they still have the trip, but it's like controlling the length of it or like how fast it gets metabolized, you know? So no, that's a really, that's super a, interesting. a really good point. I mean, um, not all of structure has to do with what it binds to and activates some of the structure. As I mentioned last time with DMT, some of the structure has to do with how long is it going to survive in your body? It has, it's pharmacokinetics, if you will. You know, how, how long of an experience is mm -hmm. this? The DOX compounds they have that amphetamine structure. Don't get broken down. 18 hours of tripping. Too much. Yeah. What breaks down these uh, more dopaminergic structures? Because I know we talked a little bit about what breaks down the serotonergic ones. Well, so actually it's, it's it the same? kind of the same uh, enzyme. So both serotonin and dopamine and serotonergic drugs that look like serotonin, the tryptamines, and drugs that look like dopamine, the phenethylamines, are all broken down by this enzyme called monoamine oxidase. I keep talking about that one nitrogen, that one amine group. <laughs> Very and, important right, to the, psychedelics. <laughs> this enzyme monoamine oxidase comes in two flavors, A and B, and Tasty. Uh, each one kind of specializes in either serotonin and, and norepinephrine or norepinephrine and dopamine. But uh, regardless, yeah, the, uh, monoamine oxidase, often abbreviated MAO, um, is what breaks down most of these drugs and also breaks down serotonin and dopamine. So if the molecule is tweaked in a way that MAO can't get to it or it inhibits uh, monoamine oxidase, um, then you have a much longer lasting drug. DMT, no such luck. Super fast. It gets ripped apart by monoamine oxidase, even in your stomach, like before it gets to your brain. Whereas something like amphetamine, which is literally just phenethylamine with one tiny carbon group off of the chain, uh, that, that small carbon group makes it too bulky for monoamine oxidase to rip apart and voila, you have a very potent stimulant. Yeah. And I'm really glad that we touched on that because I know last time we talked a lot about like how it binds in the binding pocket and the different uh, confirmations and the receptor. And so I think it is important also to bring into, it's not always, you know, pharmacodynamics, it's also pharmacokinetics that play a huge role in what these drugs are doing in humans. Right. So, and, and just to clarify, pharmacodynamics is the binding, you know, yeah. that binding and, and targets receptor activation, et cetera. And pharmacokinetics is how your, your body is really uh, processing that drug. Yeah. So I think that about covers everything that we wanted to touch on today. Is there anything you missed or I missed or we missed that you think? Uh, yeah, actually, I think if we're talking about um, phenethylamines and, and stimulants, I didn't really talk about how the stimulants work or their risks, especially MDMA's risks that are unique from psychedelic mm -hmm. risks. So psychedelics, pretty non-toxic, pretty hard to overdose on, nearly impossible to overdose on. But 
you know, still have some of that behavioral toxicity. You trip too hard in the wrong place. You could get yourself into a dangerous or life-threatening situation. Yeah. With the amphetamines, amphetamines release dopamine. Amphetamines can certainly be addictive. Again, everyone's heard of meth. Amphetamine is not a whole lot different um, when it comes to addiction risk. They release dopamine. They can, you know, damage your uh, dopaminergic neurons. MDMA, even though it's very different from psychedelics and amphetamines, it is similar enough to amphetamines to have a decent overdose risk. It dumps a ton of serotonin. It can block, you know, that monoamine mm -hmm. oxidase enzyme. And also if you abuse MDMA, it can also damage uh, neurons, specifically serotonin ones, which are a little bit more fragile uh, than dopamine neurons. So just yeah. something to keep in mind. Psychedelics are Prolonged. pretty benign. Prolonged use of some of these amphetamines or amphetamine-like substances can have their own set of risks that are quite different from psychedelics. That's correct. So yeah, the yeah. structure is very similar, mechanism of action very different, and risks can be quite different. So um, if you choose to consume any of the, any substances in this class or you know someone that does, please look up the specific and individual drug that, that you know is in question and make sure that you understand the risks both Short term, you know, when you, you're taking it that day and long term, if you choose to use it uh, multiple times or repeatedly. So just keep that in mind that the risks can change substantially. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, like we mentioned, analogs are out there. So just, you know, if you are choosing to partake, make sure you trust the person you're getting it from. And, you know, you let somebody know what your plans are just in case something goes wrong. Absolutely. Well, Thank you for having me on. This has been yeah. great. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure to talk about phenethylamines today. So Yeah, thanks so much for joining us uh, on this two-part adventure that we have taken. And I hope to have you back in the future to talk about maybe some designer drug stuff. Designer um, drugs. Let's do it. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in again this week and to part two of our Structure Equals Function series. As always, please like our stuff, subscribe, share with all of your friends and family, and let us know if you want to be on our podcast. Mm -hmm.